Chapter 31 of From Bangkok to Bombay, Siam, French Indochina, Burma, Hindustan, by Frank G. Carpenter. This recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Betty B. John Bull's Biggest Police Job. Many government officials tell me that the Army is John Bull's best paying asset in India. It is kept up without taxing his people at home, and it gives him a big fighting force which he has used in South Africa, in China, in Egypt, and the Sudan, in Tibet and Afghanistan, and in France and the Near East, as well as in other parts of the world. Recently, there were units of the Indian Army serving the British Empire in Palestine, Egypt, Mesopotamia, and colonial stations. These troops were, however, paid from the British exchequer while outside of India. John Bull's hold upon India is the wonder of colonial governments. He has here a mixture of the most turbulent and the most peaceful peoples on earth. He has some whose religion teaches them it is their duty and business to prey on and plunder their fellows, and millions who have feuds with one another and who would fight to the death except for the strong arm of the British. Nevertheless, Great Britain controls and protects the country with a military force averaging a little less than one soldier to each thousand people the whole army including both british and natives numbers only about three hundred thousand men the ratio between the british and the native troops is ten english to twenty-five indian soldiers one reason the british can maintain control with so few troops in such a large territory and among so many alien people is the fact that of India's 320 millions, only about 25 millions have today any strong warlike spirit. It is from these that the Indian army is chiefly recruited. Among them are the Gurkhas, the Rajputs, and the Sikhs, the Marathas, mountain people of the western coast, the Jats, strict Hindus, and the Pathans of Afghanistan. A Pathan infantryman was the first Indian to be decorated with the Victoria Cross, which until the World War had never been granted to a native soldier. Some of the best of the fighters are the little Gurkhas from Nepal and Sikkim. They are on the average only five feet tall and an exception to the minimum enlistment height of five feet four inches is made in their case. After the Gurkhas were thoroughly beaten by the British just about the time of our War of 1812, they conceived a great respect for their conquerors and enlisted in large numbers in the Indian army, in which they have made fine soldiers. The Germans have cause to remember hand-to-hand -hand trench warfare, in which the Gurkhas used their terrible kukris, crescent-shaped, razor-edged knives, against the foes of Great Britain. In contrast to the little Gurkhas are the tall Rajputs, whose name is derived from the Sanskrit for king's sons or men of royal descent. They are a survival of the ancient military caste and are said to trace their ancestry back to the Sun Dynasty. The Mughals had a hard time subduing them. They are fine muscular fellows with fierce mustaches turned upward and sometimes looped behind their ears. Among the Rajput warrior princes was Sir Partab Singh, the regent of Jadpur. When the World War broke out, he was about 70 years old, yet he offered his troops and his services. 
the viceroy urged that a man the age of the prince should stay at home but the warrior replied that he would sit on the steps of the viceregal lodge at simla refusing food and drink until he was permitted to go to france with his men convinced that the old man meant what he said and that such a performance would cause a commotion throughout india the viceroy consented and not long after sir partab singh led his lancers overseas the sikh soldiers generally stand out because they are cleanly in person and usually taller than the other indians they wear immense turbans of white or some light color some of which bear the sharp-edged steel quoit that their forefathers used to hurl at their enemies in battle the sikhs number some two millions and come from the punjab the sect was founded in the fifteenth century by a peasant religious teacher who proclaimed a pure form of hinduism denouncing both idolatry and the caste system during the next three hundred years the sikhs became a powerful military order whose fighting men regarded death on the battlefield as a passport to salvation and never showed their backs to an enemy for a time during the early days of british occupation they gave a great deal of trouble but later settled down and became the most loyal soldiers in the indian army one of the serious phases of the present unrest in india is the fact that through the trouble of amritsar in april nineteen nineteen the british lost the friendship of the sikhs because of some disorders in the district sir michael o'dwyer governor of the punjab obtained from the viceroy a proclamation of martial law all gatherings were forbidden suspects were imprisoned and there was generally a bad state of affairs the crowning horror occurred at amritsar the stronghold of the sikhs about two thousand men and women were gathered in a meeting in a square surrounded by tall houses when brigadier general dyer arrived with about a hundred soldiers these he posted on a ridge commanding the shut-in space and after ordering the mob to disperse told his men to shoot a fearful scene ensued and the place was strewn with wounded and corpse before general dyer gave the order to cease firing according to the official accounts three hundred and seventy-nine were killed and several times that number were wounded governor o'dwyer wired his general that he had done exactly right but later the british government censored the conduct of both men and retired them from further service still general dyer was presented with a hundred and fifty thousand dollars raised by public subscription from friends and admirers and in some quarters he was lauded as a savior and protector of the british the punjab wrongs decided gandhi to start his campaign of non-violent non-cooperation which has made john bull's police job in india so extremely difficult mohandas karamshand gandhi was born of well-to-do parents and had a university education in london his father and grandfather before him were leaders of the people and he began his career as a champion of the indians in south africa where he practiced law for a number of years when the world war broke out gandhi and his wife whom he had married when he was twelve went to london to organize an indian ambulance corps like many other leaders he hoped that in recognition of india's services to the allied cause the british would grant self-government in india as soon as the war was over when this was denied 
there was a burst of indignation all over india and gandhi became the leader of the agitation for swaraj or home rule the way to gain this end gandhi thought was by a policy of non-cooperation non-cooperation meant among other things giving up titles of honor and honorary offices under the british government taking no part in government loans boycotting government schools refusing to accept any military or civil post and conforming to the doctrine of swadeshi or patronage of home industry gandhi considered swadeshi the most important of all he declared that english manufacturers had ruined local industries and were draining the resources of india at the rate of more than twenty million dollars a year he reminded his fellow countrymen of how in the days of the east india company the native hand-woven cloths had competed so successfully with the british goods that in seventeen o one the sale of india's calicoes in england was forbidden by law then when the power loom and spinning jenny were invented hindustan became an importer of cotton goods and dependent on the british mills go back said gandhi to the old hand-weaving crafts and wear only cloths made in india his emissaries went about setting up their looms in the marketplaces and singing the old spinning songs of india as they wove before the crowds a certain kind of cap of coarse homespun or kadar became the sign of gandhi's followers who multiplied all over the land women even wives of well-to-do indians adopted saris of kadar thousands of yards of imported cottons were burned on the docks at bombay although gandhi stood firm against violence after a time riots began to break out finally he was tried and sentenced to a term of six years imprisonment on account of ill health he was freed early in nineteen twenty four after he had served but one-third of his term during his imprisonment the non-cooperation movement waned and when he was freed though he was still the adored spiritual leader of his countrymen he was no longer their political dictator political leadership had passed to more practical men who have continued to press for swaraj or india for the indians among the native leaders there is great dissatisfaction with the way in which the army in india is financed and managed they do not want it to be considered as a branch of the army of defense for the british empire and seek legislation to prevent its serving outside india they maintain that it should be for the protection of india alone and that moreover it should become more and more indianized as it is now british officers have all the higher positions and indian officers no matter what their age or length of service must often take orders from raw subalterns just out from home steps have been taken toward satisfying the demands of the native leaders king's commissions have been granted to a number of native officers serving in the regular indian army and indian cadets are now qualifying for commissions at the royal military college at sandhurst england at dera dun in the united province has been established the prince of wales royal indian military college a preparatory military school for a limited number of indian boys who may wish to go to sandhurst one item of army expense that the nationalists especially resent is the cost of sending the british soldiers up to the hills in the hot weather 
this the government maintains is absolutely essential as the british are not accustomed to the indian climate and cannot keep in good condition without this change the government also justifies its expenditure of almost half the indian budget for the maintenance of the army by pointing to the fact that nowhere else in the world is a population of three hundred and twenty millions defended at so low a cost as to what the army means to india a general whom i met at calcutta said if the british rule were removed for a week india would relapse into a state of anarchy the mohammedans would sweep down on the hindus and the gurkhas would loot and massacre the people of bengal the only salvation for india is in a strong power in control and not long ago one of the northern native chiefs said in this connection i should like to see the british leave if they did i would take half a dozen regiments and within three weeks there would not be a two-anna bit left on the plains of the ganges we would loot the bengalis and capture their women i tell you it would be sport undoubtedly without the british the modern structure of trade and distribution that had been established would break down disaster and famine would follow for example if the irrigation systems port works and railroads were to become disorganized at present at any rate it looks as if the british alone were capable of handling the situation and keeping a balance between the various princes creeds and peoples i am told that the agitators do all they can to stir up sedition in the army anarchistic publications are smuggled into the native barracks and attempts are made to create dissatisfaction among the troops though the soldiers are loyal and stick to the british nevertheless they have been thinking hard since the russo-japanese war to the oriental it was a great surprise that the japanese beat the russians it was the defeat of the white man by the brown man then the question arose among the fighting classes of india if the japanese were victorious why should not the indians be too in some great war of the future yet the indian troops stood by the british in the world war to the great surprise and chagrin of the germans as a german newspaper of nineteen fifteen put it we expected that the whole of india would revolt at the first sound of the guns in europe but behold thousands and tens of thousands of indians are fighting with the british against us in addition to the army india has a large civil police every town has its local watchmen every city is patrolled by police and on the whole order is fairly well kept the watchmen are under the eyes of the headmen of their villages and major crimes are reported to the district authorities in the big towns there are police commissioners and at the stations lists are kept of released convicts suspected characters and habitual offenders such persons are carefully watched and when they move their records follow them upon such lists are the names of the descendants of the thugs and others who made crime a business the kuru marus professional thieves and pickpockets still flourish they rob houses not by entering through the doors or windows but by digging through the mud walls in many cases i have been told individuals employ a member of the thieves caste as a watchman holding him responsible for any theft that occurs as a rule he makes no attempt to keep awake but sleeps on the premises for he knows that it is contrary to caste rules to rob a place where one of the thieves caste is on guard the thugs have about disappeared 
this clan of assassins first strangled and then robbed their victims who were offered to kali their patron goddess they had maps of the country on which were indicated murder stations or places where a thug could kill with least danger of discovery they murdered by wholesale in one of the trials a certain thug confessed that he had been engaged in nine hundred assassinations the road poisoners of today are said to be the descendants of or allied to the thugs they work in small gangs following pilgrims and travelers and administering poison so that they may be able to rob one of the most common drugs used is nux vomica and another is the native datura which produces insensibility and death the latter which comes from a plant common throughout the country is one of the famous poisons of ancient india and kills without leaving trace of the cause of death poisoning has always flourished in india the legends of the gods are full of the custom and love charms and death charms may still be bought the tanners used to poison cattle for the sake of their hides by placing arsenic in their feeding troughs and within recent times an attempt was made to poison an army official with diamond dust mixed with arsenic however law and order are now better established in india than in any other country of asia with the exception of japan there are courts everywhere and every native has the right to bring suit the hindus are fond of litigation and spend freely in defending their rights something like two million civil cases are instituted each year the civil justices and the majority of the magistrates are natives and the native lawyers many of whom are graduates of the universities are both able and efficient there is a regular system of appeal courts and there are also supreme high courts from which appeals may be made to the privy council in england i have been told that two facts alone prove how well john bull has handled his police job in india one is that for more than one hundred and fifty years no conquering army has swept down through the gaps in the himalayas the other that the natives generally prefer to be tried by a british rather than an indian judge End of chapter 31